It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey, here we are. Final episode of the season, and we've come full circle with another episode from Chuck Klosterman, reading two stories from his collection, Raised in Captivity. And for any new listeners out there, welcome to Storybound. How can this be the place? I have the kind of job where I take a shower at night, after I get home. When I was young, I always assumed I'd have a different kind of job. The kind of job where you take a shower in the morning, before you leave. That's not how things worked out. I went to college for three semesters until I was broke. They told me to apply for a Pell Grant but the application was more complicated than any of the classes. I needed to work for a while before I went back, and the only way to make real money was to take a job where you took a shower at night. I figured 10 or 12 months of night showers would lead to a lifetime of morning showers, which is what I wanted. But you know, I also wanted a Honda Hurricane. Then I had to get my wisdom teeth pulled. Then my friends, who were still enrolled at school, convinced me to go to South Padre Island for a week, and we all took turns driving, except I got a DUI in North Texas and had to wire some lawyer three grand to knock it down to reckless driving and minor in consumption. That was 16 years ago. I've had a lot of different jobs in the interim, but my shower schedule has remained unchanged. Some days are bad and some days are good. We all go to the bar after work on Thursdays, Fridays, and Mondays during football season. Those are the good days. The name of the place is Wing Bar, for reasons that are not exactly surprising. I like it, but I don't love it, for reasons that are not exactly surprising. The biggest upside is that I can leave my car overnight in the parking lot across the frontage road if and when that becomes necessary. Wing Bar is a brick building with dark windows and a neon sign that only says Wing Bar. If you don't know what it is, you don't know what it is. That's the second biggest upside. Last Thursday, as I crossed the four-lane street after parking my car, I saw a jittery man standing outside the bar, peering into the windows through cupped hands and constantly re-examining a front door that provided no numeric information. He was wearing a suit and a tie. That was odd. He kept looking at his phone and scrutinizing arbitrary architectural details surrounding the building. His thoughts were easy to read. Is this the place? Oh, this must be the place. But how can this be the place? It was like his brain was generating subtitles. I stopped my approach and watch him worry, for no real reason. He makes a phone call. It lasts 10 seconds and he nods for the duration. 
Then he turns away from the wing bar door and walks up the street. And I follow him for no real reason. I know where he's going before he does. He's going to P.D. Black's, the only other bar within walking distance. Black's is the nice bar. It's so nice that some people call it a tavern. It's so nice that during the day, it feels like a restaurant. It's bright inside and there's only one TV. They enforce the smoking ban. The bathroom stalls go all the way to the floor. I've been there maybe three times, always on a date. The nervous man in the suit walks fast. He doesn't notice me or anything else. When I finally push through the door of P.D. Black's, he's already joined his group. It's three other men, all of them short, all of them white, all of them in suits. The other three suits appear to be teasing him for going to the wrong place. They drink thick brown liquor on ice. The bar itself is oak and clean and shaped like a horseshoe. So I sit on the opposite end, 25 feet away. I order a pint of Killian's Red and watch them talk. Part of me is worried that I'm too dirty to be in here, but that feeling passes. No one is looking at me. It's loud and the assorted conversations drown out the music. Wing bar is equally loud, but almost always in the opposite way. There are many attractive women here, or at least some attractive women, or at least women. They all seem to be wearing pencil skirts, which I love. I never knew pencil skirts were called pencil skirts until recently, when my 19-year-old niece explained that this is how one is supposed to revert to skirts of this style. I always thought they were just called small skirts. This, I suspect, is the kind of thing people learn in college. Not the only thing, obviously, but maybe it's an extra thing you learn, in an ancillary fashion. While you're primarily learning about accounting or hotel management or chemistry, it's a useless thing for a man to know 99% of the time. But then pencil skirts randomly come up in conversation and either you know what they are or you don't. I've had to educate myself. Beer is expensive in a place like this, but who cares? I'm not destitute. I drink seven. Watching these short guys in suits is awkwardly mesmerizing despite the fact that their banter is only audible when they all laugh. It looks like they're constantly arguing, but no one ever gets mad. They drink slowly. They drink like people who intend to drive home. For the first hour, I try to make myself annoyed by their presence. I want to dislike them, but I don't, I can't. It's useless to get angry over strangers. If we concede that life is not fair, we must also concede that it has to be unfair to someone else's benefit. There's no way around that. Maybe they deserve it, maybe they don't. Maybe no one deserves anything. Maybe being smart enough to have a job where you wear a suit isn't worth the various trade-offs such as being too dumb to realize how lame this bar is. By the time I start my eighth Killians, the only sensation I feel is curiosity. Not about them so much, but about myself. I'm drunk enough to climb inside my most vulnerable thoughts. I pick up my beer and walk over to their table. Why not? It's a free country. Excuse me, I say. They all freeze. 
they're robots. Can I ask you a question? The four suits take turns looking at each other, unable to mask their confusion. One of them says okay, and then they all say okay. I think they might be drunker than me despite having consumed half as much alcohol. I pose my query to the table. What have you guys been talking about? Again, they haphazardly glance at each other instead of looking back at me. The silence lasts longer than it should. These are bad robots. Bro, says the nervous man I followed three hours earlier. We weren't talking about you, I swear to God. We weren't talking about anybody. I had forgotten where I was and how I was dressed and that my hands are covered in scars. Oh, oh no, 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 no. I I'm not that kind of person. No way, never. I, I don't want trouble. I'm not making accusations. I'm just legitimately curious about what you have been talking about tonight. They all relax instantly. A little too much, the way only drunk people can relax. That's my only question. What have you boys been discussing? Gary's wife's vagina, says one, and two of them laugh like orangutans on nitrous. No, seriously, I say, turning to the non-laughing man I assume to be Gary. Why do you possibly care? It's not that I care. I just want to know, for my own purposes. The four suits can't seem to accept the simplicity of my request. They smile and squint and stammer. The guy who made the vagina joke finally tries to explain. He's terrible at explaining things. I don't think we've been talking about anything, he claims. We work together, so we've been talking about work, but work sucks, so not really. We're all in a fantasy baseball league, so we talked about which guys still get steals and which guys still get saves. Gary has a little kid, and we talked about the kid. The National are playing here next month, but none of us can go, so we talked about how we're not going to see the National. Uh, how's that? Is that what you need? But you've been sitting here for three hours. There must be more. Didn't you talk about books or movies or anything else? Books? I don't think we've ever talked about books. I guess we did talk about the last Star Wars movie. We all hate it. I, I don't mean movies like Star Wars. You don't like Star Wars? No, that's not what I mean. I just thought you'd be talking about different kinds of movies or current events or maybe tennis. Why would we be talking about tennis? I don't know. You say you all work in the same office? He and I met in law school, said the vagina joke maker, pointing toward probable Gary. And then we both got jobs at their firm, dismissively waving the back of his hand at the other two robots. You're lawyers. Yeah, we're lawyers. You know, I needed a lawyer once. I committed a crime in another state by accident. Kind of a bad crime, and I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I thought it might ruin my life. But I ended up talking to some lawyer over the telephone, and we had two or three short conversations, and he said he could fix everything for around $3,000. And he did. I ended up getting charged with a couple of not-so-bad crimes, and I never even had to go back for the court date. I still don't know how that worked. I never even met the lawyer in person. Was it a felony? I don't even know. It was a DUI. Oh, sure, said the vagina joke maker. You can do that. That's not hard. 
is higher than it used to be, but still not difficult. I had no idea. It seemed so crazy at the time. It is crazy, said the nervous little man I followed up the street. That's the only thing you learn in law school that's useful. Laws are crazy on purpose. Everything is negotiable. If you make a law complicated enough, you can apply it any way you want. You just need to make sure it's so complicated that no normal person can understand it unless they went to law school. He took a bird-sized sip of bourbon and continued. But what do you do? This doesn't seem like your kind of place. Lots of things. Uh, but right now, sheetrock. Well, I've heard of that, said Probable Gary. We'd reached the point in the conversation where something had to change. Either they had to begrudgingly ask me to sit down, or I had to make up an excuse to walk away. I take the latter option. There is nothing more to be gained from this. I carry my beer into the bathroom, enter a stall, close the door, and pour the remainder of the pint down my throat. I take a long piss and pay my bill. It's so high I need to use my debit card. The night air is still warm when I get outside and more humid than earlier. No traffic on the street in either direction. Why did I ask if they were talking about tennis? They must think I'm an idiot. I walk back toward my car, which I think I can still probably drive. I pass the wing bar and consider popping in. The other guys might still be in there. But then again, what would be the point? What would we do? Drink more drinks? Complain about Star Wars? Nobody deserves anything. Everything is negotiable, and I need to take a sh- Tell me what it looks like On the outside Getting paranoid Suspicious minds
The song you just heard is titled Wash by Lindsay Bitson. And now for a quick commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Chuck Klosterman and Lindsay Bitson. And now we return from our break for another story. Execute again. This is the 10th interview I've granted since the election. At this point, I feel like the backstory has been more than sufficiently covered. I thought the gal from the New York Times Magazine did an especially comprehensive job, despite getting a few key details incorrect. All of this has been addressed elsewhere, arguably to the point of overkill. That said, I do understand why certain people are enamored with my story. They think it explains so much. They think it reflects something that can't be otherwise seen. Is that true? I suppose if people think that it does, it does. And I certainly don't mind talking about my life since my life is my life. I'm not going to rehash the biographical details. Those are easy enough to find on the internet. I also won't respond to statements made by any of my peers. They have the right to think or believe whatever they want. I'll only tell you what I remember firsthand. He showed up in August, just before my junior year. There was no fanfare. It wasn't like anybody announced, oh, here's Jasper Lovelace, the wonderful new football coach. He's going to change everything about reality. Remember, this was a town so small that it wasn't even included on most Oklahoma roadmaps. There wasn't a single stoplight. There was no newspaper. There was no news. We all just showed up for the first day of football practice and Lovelace is the man waiting in the equipment room. Mirrored sunglasses, massive beard, massive gut, clothes from Target or Kmart. Some kids thought he seemed gay, but I'd have never made that inference on my own. None of this was a big deal to anyone. Nobody cared about football at my school. I didn't care and I was on the damn team. The coach was just the coach. But I must say, this guy, this person, was immediately goofy. Immediately. For the first four days, we never touch a football. We don't even go outside. Lovely sits us in the school cafeteria and meticulously lectures about subjects that appear to have no application to anything related to sports. Clocks. He spends the first two hours explaining how clocks work from a mechanical standpoint. He talks about how the ocean is 95% unexplored. He talks about math without using numbers, the Civil War, uh, the crucifixion, chopping wood, Kierkegaard's philosophy of repetition, which I'd totally forgotten about until I saw it mentioned in his obituary. There are some parables and some fairy tales and a few extremely long jokes without punchlines. It's disjointed, it's granular, but the big takeaway from these four interminable days is that our football team is only going to run one play for the entire season. He mentions this, almost in passing, six or seven times. We do not take his words at face value. Why would we? What does that even mean, you know? On the fifth day, a Friday, we finally go outside. It's raining like crazy. Lots of lightning, scary thunder. For a few minutes, it hails, 
and we all wonder if maybe the firehouse will blow the tornado siren. But we stay out there. For the first hour, all we do is conditioning drills. These are like the conditioning drills Rocky Balboa did in that movie where he fights the Russian. We have to throw straw bales and run through the local swamp and shovel grain. It's more or less unpaid farm work, and everybody wants to quit. Farm work was what most of us had joined the team to avoid. But there's just something hypnotic about this fat guy with the dumb name and the dumb beard. He's so composed, so calm, so above it all. It's the first time any of us have ever encountered a coach who doesn't yell and never swears. He makes all his instructions seem self-evident. We eventually walk over to the practice field and start learning this one specific play. The play he halfway explained during his little speech about Kierkegaard. It's the most convoluted educational experience I've ever had, still to this day. An old classmate of mine is now a neurosurgeon and he claims it was trickier than anything he experienced in med school. It took us a long time just to figure out how to line up in the correct formation. All 11 players, even the linemen, had to memorize all this intricate footwork, which I can only compare to learning how to foxtrot and moonwalk at the same time. Every blocker was pulling and crossing, and if any one person's timing was microscopically imperfect, we'd all collide. How can I possibly explain this? It was a little like one of those Rube Goldberg machines. The quarterback takes the snap and hands it to a halfback breaking to his right. That halfback immediately hands the ball to the fullback going left. And then the fullback delivers it to a wingback curling toward the middle. These three handoffs all happen within a two second window. When it works, it all happens so fast that it almost looks like nothing happened at all. From a helicopter, the motion of the play was supposed to resemble water spiraling down a drain. It seemed impossible to get this correct. I have no idea how many attempts it took before we got it even halfway right. Way more than a hundred. Maybe closer to a thousand. A handful of guys stopped coming to practice the following Monday. Lovelace didn't care at all. He compared them to people who believed the moon landing was faked. We work on this play constantly, over and over and over again. It's usually all we do for the entire three-hour practice. For the first week or so, we assume this must be some kind of Zen lesson because Lovelace tried to introduce us to Buddhism back in the cafeteria. We all assume we'll eventually add the other offensive plays. The real plays, you know? Uh, but as the days progress, it becomes clear that we're not adding anything. This is the entire playbook. We don't even have a name for the play because it doesn't need a name. There's nothing to differentiate it from. We never put in a punt formation because we're told we'll never punt, ever, under any circumstance. There will be no field goal attempts. There will be no passing plays. Hey, there's still more story to come. We'll be right back after this final break. You are listening to Storybound with Chuck Klosterman and Lindsay Bitson. And now we return for our final chapter. Well, 
The night before our first game, Lovelace draws up a defensive alignment on the locker room chalkboard and lists which 11 players will start and what specific positions they'll occupy. But we never actually practice playing defense, based on his argument that it won't matter. This schematic is a projection of where you're supposed to stand at the inception of your opponent's action, he said. That was how he talked. When presented with the opportunity, initiate contact with the ball carrier. That was the extent of his defensive instruction. Now, I realize some of this has been explained elsewhere, particularly in that unnecessarily contentious piece in Jacobin, but I will summarize it again since I know that's what you want and I know that's what you're here for. Jasper Lovelace had no football experience whatsoever. There was no mystery around that fact. He would straight up say, I am not a football coach. I'm not sure what he was, to be honest, or what he thought he was. He seemed a little like an engineer without an engineering degree. He liked to describe himself as an artist without creativity. The one thing I do know is that he designed this singular play to mirror the movement of wristwatch gears, which was the reason for all that horology shit back in the cafeteria. Lovelace's theory was that an offensive football team could generate a spiraling clockwise motion at the point of attack. And the sheer mass of the whirling players, including the defenders who would be swept up against their will, would involuntarily propel the ball carrier forward and downward into the turf but beyond the line of scrimmage. It was basically a physics equation. It did not matter what the opponent did or even if they jammed the entire defensive squad into the exact spot where they knew the ball was going. If executed correctly, the result was supposed to be the same every time. The play would unspool, the mass of humanity would be untangled, and the wingback would always, always end up 2.7 yards beyond the line of scrimmage with a standard deviation of plus or minus four inches. Lovelace worked all this out on reams and reams of graph paper, which he later burned. But once the play was memorized and internalized, we didn't need any pictures or calculation. Once his worldview was established, the logic becomes unassailable. If we ran this play correctly four times in a row, we would gain exactly 10.8 yards, which would constitute a first down. We would then run it four more times and, once again, gain exactly 10.8 yards, constituting another first down. We could theoretically do this for the whole game, theoretically scoring a theoretical touchdown every theoretical possession. It was, theoretically, 100% efficient. This is the reason Jasper Lovelace believed investing any time into a defensive strategy was irrelevant. If we stopped an opponent on just one possession, purely by accident, the war would be over. Because we would score every time and they would psychologically surrender. The logistics, of course, were not that simple. We famously lost the season opener 88-0 and everybody in town thought Lovelace was an imbecile. Everyone was like, what in the hell does this turkey tit think he's doing? This isn't football. But you know, it wasn't football, so that criticism didn't bother him. Everyone was like, what in the hell does this turkey tit think he's doing? This isn't football. But you know, it wasn't football, so that criticism didn't bother him. 
I've never seen a man care less about other people's opinion. Nothing changed. We kept practicing the same play, no matter how ridiculous it made us feel. There was never any talk of scouting the opposition or giving 110% or considering what any of this was supposed to signify. There was never any deeper message. We'd just execute the play in practice and Lovelace would say, execute again. No emotion, no intensity, just execute again. So we'd run it again. No huddles, no introspection. We lost the second game 54 to zero. It was humiliating, but Lovelace harbored no shame. Execute again. I found myself wanting to be more like him. I started wearing mirrored sunglasses. We lost the third game 27 to zero. Execute again. Execute again. We lost the fourth game 18 to 12 on the road, eliminating us from playoff contention before the season was even half finished. We were a laughing stock. You could actually hear people laughing in the stands. But on the bus ride home, after we scored those first 12 points, Lovelace cryptically looked back from the front seat of the bus and said, It's happening. None of us will ever forget the way he said that. I can still hear his voice right now, today. It haunts me. I have no idea why we stuck with him. I guess it seemed like we were inventing something other people couldn't understand. It, it was a little like a cult. It was a cult, probably. So we play the fifth game, and we win. We win 32 to 28. And then the following week, we win 66 to 20. People think it's cute that this is happening. They think it's charming that a football team can win with only one play. We're on the local news in Stillwater. The next week is homecoming, and the final score is 72 to 14. No one can touch us. We finished the season six and four, winning our last game 112 to zero. Our wingback, Ricky Milner, breaks every scoring record in the state. But of course, no colleges recruit him because he never has a single carry that goes for more than three yards. By the end of the year, everyone in town is talking about how Jasper Lovelace is a genius and how we'll undoubtedly go undefeated next season and win state. The rest of the story is the stuff everyone already knows. Lovelace inexplicably resigns that December and goes on to become the person he eventually became. Missing his funeral will bother me forever. Ricky Milner is now Richard Milner, who of course is our president-elect. We lost touch, Ricky and I, but I'm so proud to have known him all those years ago. Who would have ever believed that the kid who used to shotgun old Milwaukee in my basement would somehow become president of the United States? The boy who was our quarterback went on to design the first artificial lung from organic fibers. Our old left tackle is arguably the finest living architect in North America, having just designed that astonishing library in Vancouver. I assume you've read T.R. Henke's novel where the titular character is unambiguously named Lovey Jasper. Henke played halfback. I don't remember him reading a single book all through high school, but now they say he's probably going to win the Pulitzer. It's so wild. Every single person on that team ended up with an amazing life, which can't be a coincidence. We were taught things they don't teach anymore. We were taught things that were never taught, ever, to anyone else. 
Jasper Lovelace convinced us that we did not have to live like normal people. He rebuilt our brains. With the exception, I suppose, of my brain. I'm just a regular guy, which is why you're here now, talking to me about the new president and all those other boys who keep changing the world. I'm the lone contradiction, and the media uses that against me. But please let me say, once more, for the record, I did not do the things they say I did. I did not kill those people. I can't explain how their bone fragments got in my garage or why someone would have put them there. I don't even know 260 people. I mean, come on, 260 unconnected murders? Am I a monster? Am I a machine? The trial was a farce. My lawyer deserves to be disbarred and that judge was a narcissistic clown. But I will appeal. Believe me, I will appeal. I will be vindicated. A song at the top of this episode was by Lindsay Bitson. You can find her on Spotify. Her album, Bathing in Yesterday, is good stuff. Thank you to Chuck Klosterman and our friends at Penguin Random House. Colleen McGarvey, Dan Zitt, Catherine Punya, and Lance Fitzgerald. And a big thanks to our Digital One studio friends, Kelsey Woods, Michelle Stolberg, and Josh Millman. Thank you to Epidemic Sound, and thank you to the team at Storybound. Matt Keeley, Jesse Adler, Sylvia Beltill, Jordan Aaron, and Tim Carplus. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. Editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, mixing, and mastering for this episode was done by me, Jude Brewer. And that's it for the season. We've been live since June. Can you believe it? I can't. It's a whole new year with new possibilities. We've got season five on the way. And in the meantime, you can find us on Instagram or on Twitter at StoryBoundPod. You can also tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. As sad as I am to say goodbye and, you know, see you, I guess, well, really in just a couple of months. I need the break, truthfully. <laughs> I've been working on quite a few projects. Um, but more on that later. Uh, I recommend you actually go check out my Substack where I'm doing a newsletter. It was weekly, but now it's just sort of occasional. Anyway, Jude Brewer, how long must I belong to this? Find me on Substack. I'll see you there. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.